Hi friends, this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a podcast that is all things literary with a pinch of cinema and spice. So welcome everyone to the show and our second ever Richard Bachman novel, which is 1982's The Running Man. So this one appears to be the last of the early Bachman novels, and in my 1985 compilation version, it's a little over 160 pages, but definitely appears to be more pages in the various paperback singles out there that sort of singled the early Bachman novels. It might be in the 300s. Um, But I really did enjoy this book, and we're going to dig into that a little bit more. But for those of you who enjoy sci-fi, this one is fun, and it really did remind me of a sort of grittier, more bleak version of the novelist Philip K. Dick, if you are a sci-fi fan. Uh, I enjoyed the sort of tiptoeing of sci-fi world building that King slash Bachman did in this novel. It's really fast-paced, it's structured much like a moving thrill ride. Uh, Inside, we are in the year 2025, which is alarmingly close to where we are now and unfortunately uh, very contemporary in terms of a world torn apart by division between classes, pollution, general dread, poverty. So this is another one of those hair of the dog books that popped up. Um, I did mention a hair of the dog moment with my episode of The Long Walk, which is our first Bachman novel. So if you would like to listen to that one first, I do recommend, mostly because I am going to be talking about The Long Walk kind of in tandem with this, because there's a lot of similarities there. But The Long Walk is a little bit of a Debbie Downer book. I think this one is as well a little bit. Um, So if you haven't read Running Man and you need a damn break from all the despair from normal life that we're currently experiencing, I do recommend not reading this one unless you're numb enough to just enjoy the action of the novel, of which there is a lot and it's really fun. Or if you just want some hair of the dog with your your, um, reality coma, so to speak, or your your our sort of um, bleak reality. If you want some hair of the dog, Running Man is a is a good book. It's another log on on the fire. So I did enjoy this one a bit more than the Long Walk, just due to the further exploration of my imagination. So I know that The Long Walk is just hella popular with many readers, um, of which now that it's had some time to sort of gel in my mind, I do appreciate it. Uh, I did enjoy what it is for what it is. Um, It's very unique. It's King's first novel, so there's a lot of good stuff to sift through that. Um, But at times, The Long Walk was a very slow slog through misery and consistent death. But The Running Man is a thrill ride, and it's super popcorn. It just moves and goes and zooms across the pages with some really gnarly chases and violence and between Long Walk and Running Man, I did enjoy Running Man a little more because my mind had a little bit of a break between death and loss, and uh, Bachman plugs in some sort of fun world-building elements that got me imagining and 
really visualizing and uh, sort of putting together this dystopian world he was painting, I enjoyed that immensely. So if you're somebody who kind of wants more imaginative content, Running Man was very satisfying in that way. So Steve said this Bachman novel was written during a period of 72 hours with little to no changes at the end. And while that is crazy impressive, side note, I wonder if this was one of those occurrences where we had a little cocaine involved, much like uh, Cujo. For those of you who don't know, uh, there's a, I believe, direct quote that King doesn't really remember writing the novel Cujo due to his uh, influence of the Yayo. So um, I, you know, I, I, nobody else could, you know, I, I don't know many cocaine users who write best-selling novels, but uh, I, I wonder if this was sort of alluding to that <laughs> being involved, but uh, not sure um, if it's this one and Cujo, or I'm also not sure how many other works were um, influenced to buy it, probably more than we think, but uh, he he had a hard time remembering Cujo. I'm super impressed that in 72 hours he could just crack out something that he didn't really feel the need to edit. Um, but when I read that, when I read that it was just done in a sort of three-day flash, and I read this book for the first time this week, I realized that I do wish this book could have benefited. Um, I, I think that this book really would have benefited for some more time in the stew pot. Um, I guess I kind of wish that it would have taken him longer than 72 hours, or if he, you know, he could totally write it in 72 hours, but I do wish that the editing process, he would have uh, taken a little bit more time to do that. I say this mostly because the sci-fi elements we have in play are really cool. They're very cool, and they kind of just dangle this imaginative carrot that's so awesome. But um, with those elements that he introduces, I do have a lot of questions, and I don't know if he really gave enough time and thought to how he wanted them to go down, mostly because uh, King later explains in interviews that when he writes, he's kind of discovering a novel. He has a little bit of breadcrumbs that he starts following, and then he just writes as he discovers the book. And I think that's exactly what we have here with this Bachman novel. Um, I think he is discovering it as it goes along, and there's a little bit of good and bad to that, given the sci-fi elements he introduces. So. I think the fact that it was written in a frenzy and King maybe just wanted to get to the climactic ending, of which we are going to talk about in this episode because I do feel it's pretty important, but um, I do wish uh, that there would have been a bit more time on these sci-fi elements because I feel the story would have been a little richer and resonated a little deeper. Um, I think it would have come across uh, like a delicious morsel of sci-fi world king uh, and this dystopian maze of craziness. Uh, so I, I think I just got, I found myself feeling a little greedy and wanting a little bit more of the sci-fi sort of golden nuggets he was dropping for us in this novel. But uh, The Running Man 
as I was reading it, I kind of was impressed by some of the elements that did age well, some of the societal concepts he introduces where you're like, oh yeah, that's totally believable. However, I don't know if some of the tech stuff aged as well. Um, I also think that this novel is totally ripe for a 21st century reboot, mostly because as it reads now, it would be absolutely impossible with modern day surveillance. So. The show of The Running Man, uh, I'll kind of talk more about the individual details in the summary, but with the amount of camera tech and tracking we have, there's just no way it can really translate to the 21st century. Um, but the themes that Bachman introduces are very cool, um, and those have aged well, but uh, the, the 80s sort of, <laughs> uh, future ideas, uh, need some revamping for sure, but this would be the coolest film adaptation. We are going to talk about the 1987 film version starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is, um, I, I have zero words at this moment in time other than I just shake my head. Um, it's not a totally negative... It, it, well, well, we'll just save that for a little bit later on in the episode. I have a lot of thoughts on that. But this would be so cool if, for a contemporary movie, guys. I think that the concept and the premise are just white hot. Um, and I would love to see a futurist or a fellow sci-fi novelist sort of adapt The Running Man for the 21st century. I think this would be an awesome revamp and reboot and we need to make it happen because last I heard Long Walk is getting a film adaptation and I think Running Man would be so cool um, if we could adapt it and sort of plug it into 21st century tech and make it even more challenging and more gritty and it'd be awesome. So as I mentioned at the start, the whole novel really brought me to one of my favorite sci-fi authors, uh, Philip K. Dick, who is super famous for penning the stories Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, which if you're not familiar with those titles, you will be familiar by their movie names, which are Blade Runner and Total Recall. He also wrote The Man in the High Castle, which is a really decent show on Amazon. If you dig World War II, definitely check that one out. He also wrote A Scanner Darkly and dozens of other short stories. I think one of the most popular short stories, one of my favorites, is Minority Report, which is also the inspiration for Steven Spielberg's most wonderful and electrifying 2002 film where in that one, I believe the year is 2054, and eye scanners are everywhere, and in order to break away from society and from being tracked, Detective John Anderton, um, as well as many of the criminals in that novel, they basically have to navigate around this 21st century surveillance, and they have their eyes taken out and new ones put in to hide their real identities. So in this story, uh, Ben Richards, our main protagonist, he changes his hair color, he dresses up like a priest, he fakes a limp and an injury, which is pretty cool. but. For the 
tech up upgrades. I would really love to see what a 21st century perspective would, would take a reboot for The Running Man for sure. But if you are not familiar with Philip K. Dick, definitely check out his stuff if you enjoy sci-fi. So in the 1985 copy of the Bachman books, Steve writes in a pretty snappy essay called Why I Was Bachman. Um, he says he feels Roadwork is probably the worst of the early Bachman novels, which I myself have heard that one is a little bit problematic from other readers. But then he says this quote. He says, the reverse of this is The Running Man, which may be the best of them because it's nothing but story. It moves with the goofy speed of a silent movie and anything which is not story is cheerfully thrown over the side. End quote. So I like that. It is a ride for sure. But as I'll discuss in other sections, I'm not sure if we have enough character development or world building to make it truly awesome. I think that we're, 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 we're warm. We're getting there. We've got some good stuff. Um, and we've got some yummy morsels that make it a very entertaining popcorn book. But much like any summer blockbuster uh, with lots of explosions, very simple plot, um, just sort of like, you know, you're, you're, garden variety action franchise uh the plot moves really fast you really don't have time to think about character outcomes or your questions because everything is flying by i think i observed that quite a bit in the running man which we're going to dive into in these upcoming sections so in this episode we're going to examine what's unique about the running man we'll talk about the character of ben richards because i think we have some perplexing uh contradictory things that make him complex but also confusing and i'm not sure if i'm the only one who observed that if that's intentional or just coincidental but more on that uh, in a little bit and then after character analysis we're going to look at questions and some of the areas that aren't working for me as well as i would like we are also going to examine the ending of the novel as it's a little bit of a it's definitely one to discuss that's for sure and then i'll throw in a few thoughts on 1987's uh film of the running man so there will be spoilers about the ending uh, because it's definitely layered. I do want to bring it up with you guys and gals. So spoiler alert, I am going to be discussing the ending, but that probably won't be to our very last section. So I have a summary that I jotted down here to introduce us to the basic plot of The Running Man. The year is 2025, and the present is bleak for Ben Richards and his wife Sheila, who with a sick infant decide to participate in the high-paying, highly dangerous reality game show in which survival is the key to monetary gain. Ben becomes a contestant on The Running Man, which gives participants a maximum of 30 days to hide. 
while mailing in two short videos per day for the broadcast. Citizens are allowed to report sightings of the running man and receive compensation, and hunters have been dispatched to kill them on site if located. The running man is able slash encouraged to take out anyone in their way, making them not only a fast-moving target, but a dangerous individual who will kill to stay hidden. Whoever survives 30 days without being killed gets approximately $1 billion. So I know that's a bit wordy, but it's a little complex, so we kind of have to dive into the complexity a little bit. Um, but let us, from this point, head into the game network and dive into our first section of The Running Man, which is what's interesting. Okay, everyone, this is our section where we examine what is interesting and worth exploring and sort of digging our shovels into in regards to the cool aspects of this novel. So I have three topics I want to discuss with you guys, um, and the first one is the sci-fi elements. So much like in The Long Walk where it's very subtle sci-fi and we have just very little details to go on in terms of the long walk, the major, um, what society is in general, in this novel we have some really fun stuff going on, much more world building than in the long walk. So I did want to mention some of my favorite things that King brings to this novel, King slash Bachman. So the first one is the free V, which is uh, two words, F-R-E-E dash V-E-E. -E. And so these are mentioned throughout the novel um, all over the place, and it seems very much like 1984 in terms of the television present, not so much the surveillance or cameras, but it sounds like these free Vs are just covering the country and all cities and are even provided to the most impoverished families. So the television is really sort of governing all, all of the people. So uh, the other word that's mentioned that's sort of a cool hot button is the network. And this one is a little bit ambiguous, but in my reading it seems like it is the powers that be, it is the government, it is the control, and then we have a branch of that, the games network, which runs the really sadistic entertainment programming that we'll talk about here more in just a second. We have new dollars, which is the currency. So I do have a lot of questions on this, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, but the dollar system is seems to be similar to what it is now, but instead of just saying dollars, they say new dollars. So I don't know if that's from the network or what. Um, some of the more fun terms he creates are blams, which is cigarettes. We have dokes, which are, sounds like, um, 
marijuana-laced cigarettes or joints. Uh, dokes seem to be what the elite are constantly involved with when we do meet some of the white-collar upper-crust individuals in the novel. Um, they talk about wanting to be high and so kind of reminds me a little bit of Brave New World with the Soma, if you guys remember that one, which is uh, their sort of pleasure pill, the Soma. So uh, the, the elite like to be high. They like their drugs. Um, there's also a really fun drug that I want to know more about on the streets called San Francisco Push. So that one's super uh, cool. I, I really enjoyed reading what that one was called. I want to know more about that. What does San Francisco Push do? Is it an opiate? Is it a amphetamine? I gotta know. So fun stuff. That's the thing. There's so many fun little things. Uh, the other one is Co-op City and that is where we find our main protagonist Ben Richards and this place sounds like just sad town guys. It's pure poverty. It's um from the description, what I gathered, it sounds very much like a uh, urban project or a high-rise just full of tenants. Um, if you guys are fans of the comic book Judge Dredd or saw the film starring Carl Urban that came out a few years ago, it was so good, by the way. Go see it. Super good. A little violent, but in the setting of that show, there's sort of an urban project. Um, the, well, the whole world is mega city. Um, it's a just giant urban sprawl. And then in that is Peach Trees, which is an individual high-rise project. I kind of got the Peach Tree vibe from Co-op City, just really, really polluted, crowded, impoverished. There's just crime and um, it's it's a rough place to be for sure. Um, I know other Stephen King reviewers mentioned that Co-op City does show up in other places, which is cool. Um, so I, if you know more about Co-op City, let me know. Um, the word maggot, guys, the word maggot is sort of the new slur that's used quite often for the impoverished lower classes. So if you are poor or somebody who is competing on one of the game shows, you are a maggot. So it's pretty, it's used quite prevalently and really carries weight of being a very, very um, derogatory term towards these people of low income. So that's something I definitely noticed. Um, one of the, uh, the shows other than the running man is called treadmills to bucks and this one i feel is a little bit of a nod to the long walk we have um it's it's so sinister guys it's so evil but from my understanding it's a game show where unhealthy disabled contestants are asked trivia questions for money while walking on a treadmill and then if they get the answer wrong the treadmill is sped up um, and so it sounds like you're just watching people slowly um, have a very painful expiration. Um, the most sought after contestants in this game seem to be those who are sick and dying. So very grim and creepy and um, Ben Richards does mention treadmills to bucks. I believe there's also another game called Swimming with Alligators, which I don't know. If I, it's probably the exactly what we think it is. So um, he, he, there's definitely this bleak world where if you sign up for the games, you're going to die. Um, 
So speaking of lower classes, in this tale, Bachman really paints the class division a very stark in a very stark way. Uh, the elite control everything, um, but in this story, unfortunately, there is no middle class. So there's those who are upper crust, and then there's everybody else at the bottom who are impoverished and barely surviving. And what's also really painful to read is that there seems to be this collective understanding this digested message amongst the elite that the lower classes are lazy and drug addicted and choosing their miserable existence and we see this when a little bit later on in the novel ben carjacks a seemingly wealthy woman named amelia williams and she says and this is on page 634 in my novel she says killing for pay, uh, willing to do anything for money, wanting to overturn the country. Why don't you find decent work? Because you're too lazy. Your kind spit in the face of anything decent. And uh, that seems to be the collective sentiment amongst the elite on the lower classes, which is very kind of sad. So my second topic that I want to mention on what I found really interesting in this novel is the gritty tone. And guys, gritty is in all caps. Like, holy crap. This one is... This Bachman guy does not play. It is such an intense tone, guys. And what I am really gathering having this be my second Bachman novel is he is really just unfiltered, crass. This narration is completely untethered. He does not give a rat's ass if you're put off by what he says and how he expresses it. Um, for example, the n-word is thrown around pretty loosely pretty loosely. There's a lot of gore and violence uh, that's just gratuitously bananas. Um, I'll talk about the final scene, very reminiscent of Hank Olsen's death from The Long Walk. He was one of my favorite walkers. And uh, if you remember that one, it's a well-known Steve King trope where um, we've got some intestinal evisceration while the person is still alive. So, but aside from the actual violence, which is what it is, the overall narration is just really, um, it's rough in terms of, uh, there's just this very, very unfiltered, crass, uh, rude, does not care who he offends. We also see a lot of sexual objectification of women in a very uh, gratuitous way. There's also, a, with the scene where Ben carjacks um, Amelia Williams, he instantly hates her. She makes him angry and he talks about stopping the car and beating her, raping her, stripping her clothes off. And it was like, holy heck, like Bachman is a narrative persona. It's fearless and his stuff, his, it's distasteful in certain ways that are risky, but it's honest and it's his. And I think that's something that's very Bachman-esque. And King just, he, I think it's just his free, unfiltered zone, and wow, Bachman goes there. So I, I read from one of the book reviewers of this novel that the grittiness is to kind of show 
um, at the beginning of the novel, Ben is is pretty pretty in your face, pretty rough around the edges, and that was to indicate that he's tough enough to get selected for the Running Man game show. But I think it goes deeper than that. The the real sort of razor sharp gritty edge narration is all over the place and so it's just very brash and I being my second novel I really think it's a thing like when you read a Bachman novel like get ready to just be wow okay um eyes widened in, in terms of the way things are expressed it's it's intense for sure and what is challenging about the sort of Bachman intensity is it does sort of color our main character, Ben Richards, in a different light. I'm going to talk more about this in the character section, but it's difficult when we have such intense, gritty tone. It's like, who is a good guy here? <laughs> like, who who is good? Because I don't know. So we'll talk more about that when we dive into Ben Richards' character. But my last section, my last little topic that I so, so loved about The Running Man is novel structure. So what's really fun and unique is the entire story is a countdown on the very first page you have the phrase quote minus 100 and counting and it seems like every two to three pages we have that repeated phrase counting down and i just love how this was structured because it gradually builds momentum and intensity for the reader and I don't know if it's psychological or if it's actually happening, but once you get past minus 50 and counting, the novel really starts to cook with gas and rev up and our narrator's pace through the action. I, I was pretty sucked in by that point and I just felt like the, the pacing of the story really started to get going uh, once we got to the halfway mark, very much like a race. So loved the structure, thought that was genius, really, really applauded um, Bachman for kind of making it uh, a fast-paced uh, endeavor where there wasn't really a, a moment where I wanted to put the book down because it just kept ticking down and my curiosity was super revved at that point. So my three areas for a recap, we have the sci-fi elements, the gritty tone, and the narrative structure I found immensely cool uh, about this novel. So before we head on into character analysis, I did have a piece of text I wanted to share with you. This I thought was some really beautiful writing where we kind of get a quiet moment where we spend a little bit of time with Ben Richards' thoughts kind of what he's been through. He's had a really rough road, a really tough go living in this society. So I wanted to share, this is on page 610 in the 1985 compilation. I'm not sure where it would be in the individual paperbacks, but this is on page 610. Move along, maggot. Get lost. No job. Get out. Put on your boogie shoes. I'll blow your effing head off, daddy. Move. Then the job stride up, impossible to find anything. A rich man in a silk singlet, drunk, accosted him on the street one evening as Richard shambled home after a fruitless day and told him he would give Richards ten new dollars if Richard would pull down his pants so he could see if the street freaks really did have peckers a foot long. Richards knocked him down and ran. 
It was then, after nine years of trying, that Sheila conceived. He was a wiper, the people in the building said. Can you believe he was a wiper for six years and knocked her up? It'll be a monster, the people in the building said. It'll have two heads and no eyes. Radiation, radiation, your children will be monsters. But instead, it was Kathy. Round, perfect, squalling, delivered by a midwife from down the block who took 50 cents and four cans of beans. And now, for the first time since his brother had died, he was drifting again. Every pressure, even temporarily the pressure of the chase, had been removed. His mind and his anger turned toward the Games Federation, with their huge and potent communications linked to the whole world. Fat people with nose filters, spending their evenings with dollies and silk underpants. Let the guillotine fall, and fall, and fall. Yet there was no way to get them. They towered above all of them dimly, like the games building itself. Yet, because he was who he was, and because he was alone and changing, he thought about it. He was unaware, alone in his room, that while he thought about it, he grinned a huge white wolf grin that in itself seemed powerful enough to buckle streets and melt buildings. The same grin he had worn on that almost forgotten day when he had knocked a rich man down and then fled with his pockets empty and his mind burning. I like that one a lot. So lots of good stuff in these little mini pockets, and we are going to dive more into that in our next section of character analysis. Okay, everyone, thank you for joining me in our character analysis section where I did want to spend a little bit of time looking at our main protagonist, Ben Richards. So he is the only one we're going to investigate in this little chunk, mostly because he is such an enigma to me. And although we do have a little bit of spotlight on other characters, I just really don't feel there's enough there to kind of discuss and break down one that I will talk about in the next section is Evan McCone, which is the main hunter in the novel. He's pretty cool, but again, this novel moves so, so quickly that I feel we just don't get time. Uh, ben is on the run, quite literally, and the people he does encounter, we get some really fun dialogue and we get a little bit about their sort of personal challenges living in this very bleak society. Um, and but mostly it's expository and they sort of help Ben or they kind of tell him just how bad it really is um, so not there's just nobody that shined bright enough for me to want to discuss further however if you feel I did miss somebody there are one or two people that he does encounter on his run uh, that we probably could spend a little bit of time on, but because Ben is such a curious little enigma for me, I wanted to spend the majority of time on him. So, Ben Richards, I didn't really get an exact age for him, but 
I believe I'm putting him in the ballpark of late 20s. Uh, it isn't until about halfway into the book where we kind of get some character backstory on how Ben Richards, his father, quote, slunk into the night when he was five. And Ben doesn't blame him for this. As he said, his own mother was most likely prostituting herself to help them make ends meet and how that would just drive a man to either leave or die. So I found that part very interesting because that's exactly what happens with Ben's own wife, Sheila. Uh, Sheila and he, at the beginning of the games, have been married 11 years, and it seems like they were married for a long time before they conceived little Kathy. Kathy is quoted to be a one-year-old infant who is very very sick with the flu and apparently her birth was an absolute miracle which we got a little bit of a inkling from the text excerpt I read in the previous section because the impoverished people are exposed to such harsh working conditions we find out in the novel that the world is so polluted like disgustingly polluted to the point where many people are just dropping dead because they can't breathe and getting emphysema and the wealthy have nose filters that are very cheap to make but they're sold at high prices so the poor people aren't able to acquire them so they just breathe in the toxic air and uh, die and so uh, because of this the fertility rates are incredibly low so Kathy is quite the miracle for for Sheila and Ben so what's what's really sort of shocking it was a shocking moment in the novel for me is before the game begins Ben has about 12 hours of leeway before he has to start running and he gets a little bit of a kind of hotel experience from the games network very much like a gladiator or a Mayan sacrifice, you would get a really good meal and uh, a nice night on the town before your fight or before your human sacrifice, you know, they would kind of wine and dine you. And I think we kind of see that a little bit with Ben before he begins the game. But he calls Sheila and she openly tells him on the phone how she turned two tricks to get their little girl some medicine and it seemed to be junky medicine at that and so ben does not react in anger or surprise but total nonchalance for sure as that's what their lives are about and that is like that was just heartbreaking for me and um so that's something that was like, okay, wow, like these people prostitute themselves quite often and his own mother did it and this just seems to be how life is. Um, but here's where it gets a little bit strange. So one thing I loved about Ben right away is early in that scene when he is in that kind of hotel arena, he's being wined and dined, he has 12 hours. Actually, I think he has a little bit more than that. I think he has a few days. Um, that's right, he has 12 hours of like head start time before he starts being hunted. Um, but before the head start time, he has like a full weekend of wine and dining. 
And they offer him a prostitute. They offer him some very alluring ladies. And he declines quite vehemently and says, no, I'm married. So he's very, very passionate about staying faithful to his wife. Yet, in the same vein, when we kind of hear Ben's personal thoughts, he's a little bit I hesitate on using the word misogynistic, it's slightly too much, but he definitely objectifies women in a crass way. He really, really doesn't react to them like a polite man or somebody who maybe has good manners or respects women. He definitely objectifies them and picks apart their breasts and thighs and hips and, you know, so we get a little bit of a crass sort of perverted a sexualized um, thought process from Ben. Um, we see that a lot and I think this is that Bachman vibe where Bachman just is really really uh, in your face about sex and about sort of being unfiltered where he doesn't want the male thoughts to be tethered or um, prohibited in any way. He just blurts out what he thinks and it's often a little perverted and a little bit disrespectful and animalistic. And I, I don't mention this in a judging way at all, just as an observer, because what's very puzzling is we have Ben's, many times he denies sort of sexual um, affairs with prostitutes or with women who offer themselves up. And he's very staunchly like, no, I'm married. But then we have this <laughs> additional sort of, like he, I, I, I guess what I'm, what I'm puzzled about is where did Ben get this code of honor? This honor, where does he get it? Because as I kind of mentioned earlier, when he carjacks Amelia Williams, he, he's all about raping her. He thinks about this. He literally says, I wanted to rape her. What? Like, okay, whoa, um, pump the brakes, crazy. So it's like, how do we have both? How do we have, is that possible? Is that a little bit like Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing that, that Bachman is exploring here? Like, you know, or is Ben's faithfulness to his wife like the one good thing, right? He might be a garbage human being in all other areas, but his one little diamond in his pocket, the one ace in his sleeve, is that he's faithful to his wife. But it's like, okay, that's great, but clearly, given the devastating sort of realities of these people and the way that they acquire money, sex, I mean, Sheila had sex with two people um, to get money and he didn't seem upset about it at all, which indicates to me that it's not the first time. So they must, so it must not be this super sacred thing if Sheila has had to do that a few times in the past and his own mother. So I'm so confused. I, it's like, Mr. Bachman, can you explain to me why we have you know, this very sacred, honorable thing for marriage um, and not sexually, you know, philandering on your wife, yet poor Sheila. So 
I, I'm all about going with it, but I just wanted more development here because I think it's genius. I think if we would have had some more discussion on you know, it kind of reminds me, this is this is a stretch here, but it just sort of popped into my mind. If you guys read Crime and Punishment, I forget the female character, but it's um, it's one of the, the girls that Raskolnikov, the main character, he encounters. She is uh, someone who, oh, I this is terrible, I should know her name, but she's from a poor family and she has to end up prostituting herself and um, it is a devastating thing for the family but a necessary thing and so I think when when sort of forced prostitution is examined in literature there's a lot that can be done to really bring out the 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 main characters thoughts and feelings and um, I think I just kind of wanted that because I remember an immense amount of pity in Crime and Punishment for our main character, but we just don't really see that with Sheila. Sheila doesn't get any screen time, nor do we get any thoughts on Ben about what he really thinks about. I mean, I'm sure he's devastated and angry beyond belief, but it's like they have no other alternatives. So. I guess if sex is something that's not very sacred, physical sex, because they need to use it as a means to an end, I guess I'm just wondering where the sexual fidelity comes from on Ben. Um, because if it's, you know, I just want to know where did this honor code come from, Ben? His father left when he was five. He's kind of been hustling and working these dead-end jobs. Like, where is this honor coming from? I like it. I like that it's there. But then it quickly goes away when he talks about, you know, violence against women and he did not hesitate to murder five people in cold blood once he starts the games. Um, so because of this, I think that Bachman was on to a really good character that was complex, kind of giving us a little bit of a villain hero where there are good things that we admire about Ben and then the bad things in his character, we overlook them because we understand he's just at the bottom of the barrel, he's somebody who's just scraping by and he has to resort to these sort of criminal and um, sordid things in order to, to survive and get by. But I don't feel we just have enough screen time with that. There's not a lot of character development with Ben. It's just action, action, action. And in those quiet moments of reflection, we get these little, little morsels and these little breadcrumbs where I'm like, okay, I can get on board with that, but then I end up being more confused. So. Ben's honor. It's like, I love, I, you know, I think it's such a mark of a good man and a hero almost where it's, it's, it's always nice to see someone who wants to stay faithful to his wife because it's something that we don't see a lot in literature, I feel, because, you know, affairs are sexy and they uh, they create good conflict, you know, so we don't see a lot of fidelity in, um, in literature. And so I was pleased to see that and a part of me wonders if that was Bachman slash King because King has always been extremely devoted to Tabitha. So there's my little, little uh, thought on that. But it's like, I wonder, 
how do we have this good man who's like, nope, not gonna have sex with that incredibly voluptuous prostitute that you're offering me for free. Um, I am married and he, you know, is very stern about that and yet he talks about raping people and talks about you know the 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 wonderful size of their breasts and it's just like Bachman what are you doing um explain it to me not judging just want an explanation just want more because I can get on board with the grossest of the gross and still find something to something admirable about the character and there's a lot to admire about Ben but I just have questions so I do wish that we would have had a little bit more uh, development there and I think Bachman dangled maybe too much carrot to make me um, a little bit confused on Ben where it's like all right are you a good guy or are you not or are you both and I'm just supposed to pick and choose given the moment so those are my kind of feelings on Ben uh, he he just goes for it he's very tenacious he's very violent um, and I think he he really does have deep respect and love for Kathy, uh, his little girl, and Sheila, but then there's just all this other stuff in the action where we don't really hear about Kathy or Sheila until the very end, and it, it's pretty sad. And I really uh, wanted more either about them or more thoughts from Ben. Um, so. I don't know. What do you guys think? Because maybe this just is what it is in terms of an action book and we're just supposed to suspend um, all character development much like, you know, a, a Stallone or a Schwarzenegger or a Jean-Claude movie where it's just explosions and don't ask questions and just watch and have fun. I can do that, but it's just, it's like, if you're going to do that, then I wish Bachman would have done what he did to, uh, in the long walk where we just get very, very little, except for one or two characters will get a spotlight. Like, um, Ray Garrity, we get a little bit, but I think we get more with Peter McVries. If you guys remember him, we get a lot more backstory on him and we end up having an either good or bad reaction with these characters characters. So I, I, yeah, this is a very fascinating uh, character to explore. So if you are going to analyze The Running Man, I would love to talk about Ben Richards more with you guys. Um, what do you dudes think? Um, not to genderize it too much, but I would, I invite criticisms from all sides. However, um, my male listeners out there, what do you guys think of Ben Richards? Like, could more have been done here? Or is it just really supposed to be a popcorn book and we're not supposed to think too much about it? So I would love to know your thoughts. Please write in at underratedsk at gmail, or you can find me on any of the social medias. But having said that, let's segue to our final section, which is questions and what's not working, as well as the, uh, uh, the 1987 version of The Running Man.
Alright folks, thank you for continuing to run with me as we explore our final section, which are questions and a few areas of the novel that I just wanted more from. So kind of like what happened with The Long Walk, I had a lot of questions with The Long Walk, mostly because that one was such a blank canvas for me. I was so, so curious, so I had a ton of questions. I did have the same issue here. So with this Bachman novel, I think I even had more questions than The Long Walk due to the fact that we have just enough sort of cool sci-fi elements in play, but I wanted more, so I just got really greedy. So that's kind of a, a good thing to have questions about it. Um, but as I kind of mentioned in the intro, I think if he just would have taken more time sort of exploring what these things are and what they do, which kind of leads to a question is like, does, does King like sci-fi? Does he just like not about it? Is it not a genre he enjoys? Or because I get the feeling he just wanted to write and let this story move. And that's really cool. But sci-fi stuff is all about this brave new world, you know, like this, this bold place where stuff is crazy. So, um, so <clears throat> the five questions I have, I had more than five, but I had to edit it down. Um, so what some of the main questions are stemming from the game rules themselves. I feel overall, I wanted more about the game rules. Um, for example, I, I don't really know how long the free Vs have been around and how long the Running Man has been going for. Uh, for example, in The Long Walk, I think the Long Walk contest has been going for over 50 years. So we don't really get that. Um, so my first question, uh, aside from being um, how long has the game been going on, is how many contestants are on the game show at one time? Um, because yeah, um, when Ben is running, he has to uh, flee for his life, but is anybody doing the same thing? Is there like multiple people being hunted? Uh, in the novel, there is mention of one other person in conjunction to Ben during the broadcast, and it's mentioned that he is killed and taken out, hiding out in a shed in a rural area. So it's like, oh, okay, so there's like another guy, but it's like, is there only two? Is there, is there more? Uh, my other question, is it only men? Can women participate? Can, you know, you seemingly run throughout the country? Is it genderized, um, who can participate? Um, and then much like some of the questions I had with Long Walk, the prize is very ambiguous. So this, so I think it would have been beneficial if we knew how long the, the show had been going on. Maybe Ben could have explored his understanding of how the previous winners spent their money. Um, so one billion new dollars, is that like a billion US back in the 80s? Cause that's a freaking lot of money. That's ridiculous. Um, and so, or maybe inflation is incredibly different and maybe it's not that much at all. So I would have wanted more of a breakdown into the money and how that's allotted because 
In the beginning of the game, um, I think the first sort of few days, Ben's family, Kathy and Sheila, are compensated a couple hundred, couple thousand dollars for him lasting. He's also given a few thousand dollars to start running. So we've got a very small monetary amount when he's beginning the race. And how do we go from that to a billion? You know, and 30 days, uh, we find out in the narrative that the person who's lasted the longest is a little over eight days. So it's like, okay, in eight days, how how much is acquired? Is there, you know, a 15-day, uh, you know, 500 million? You know, I, I wanted more. Uh, this It's such a fun topic. It's such a fun area of imagination and exploration. And I was just like, Bogman, why didn't you have more fun here? Why couldn't you have given us more details and just kind of made this more fun? And you know, really go dystopian with it. I think that would have been really enjoyable. It would have made the conflict for Ben more intense. And, you know, um, for example, if there was a daily limit, like five grand per day after you, and then after three days, it's, you know, 10 grand per day or something. Um, or if we could have actually had a phone call with Sheila where she's like, oh my God, we have $20,000 and, you know, this is amazing and keep going. Or, but I, I know that he probably couldn't do that because the people in the game were you know he wanted to protect them so I get it I get it but uh, the other thing the other question I have so this is question four what exactly are the qualifications to be accepted into the game I know it's not needed to be totally black and white but um, it's very loosely described as to what they're looking for because these games are definitely gonna result in your death it seems like you know it's not a tall order or a long list of qualities but Ben Richards strategy is one where he seems to be tough and devil may care and not like a typical starving desperate sort of easily awed and manipulated poor person but that's really subtle I really had to infer that and I guess I I don't need it super black and white, but I would like more of, you know, was he nervous at all about being accepted into the game? Is it difficult to do? How many people, you know, uh, what are the odds? And is it really sought after? And so I guess I would have liked the... At the beginning, the conflict is apparent that Kathy is really sick, they have no money, he's got to do something desperate right now, but it seemed like he was accepted with great ease into the game, so maybe it's easy, maybe it's just, you know, no big deal at all. But, you know, very much like Suzanne Collins' The Hunger Games, which I think her novel, her novels, made such a large impact into dystopia, uh, dystopia YA, and game show stuff. So hers is also a television show. So lots of sort of inspiration she may have taken from this kind of uh, narrative. But Suzanne Collins talks about, you know, the, the Hunger Games have been going on for 80 years and you are forced to be in it and they pick every single year the reaping um i think it's every single year every four years i forget i need a reread of that series but 
you know and you're you're forced very much like the draft and so i think that really creates the intensity when we have those parameters and those rules and readers love that like we are all about wanting to suspend our disbelief participate in this world and i was just looking for a little bit more um, of how hard it is to get accepted onto the show um or if it's not hard at all because you're essentially signing up to die um and then uh, my fifth question is why is it encouraged that the contestant slash the running man kills whoever he needs to you know i think i get it i get that they want to ramp up um you know the dangerous aspect of the game and making the the uh contestant very much like somebody to hate and somebody you want to hunt but you know why not just let the contestant be the rabbit and let the foxes get him why does the rabbit have to bite back you know other than to be killed faster i know that it's the television aspect of that that they want you know good tv but it's like a part of me you know I was just kind of wondering why couldn't this just be like a really cool manhunt where um, Ben just wants to disappear and keep running and moving and be completely under the radar because when you leave a body count that just you know makes it worse and then they are on to you and then you're dangerous so I guess I was just questioning the decision and wanting a little bit more information on why it's got to be blood soaked on the contestant side why do they I understand if people do die in the process, but in the rules or in the arena where before the game begins, Ben is kind of told by the officials, oh yeah, like take out whoever you want. Like it was encouraged, like murder of random innocent people was encouraged and it's like, dang. So again, maybe that's just the bleakness of this world to where life is just really, no one cares. Um, and they just want good TV and they want, you know, participation from viewers. They really, really want a very hungry, bloodthirsty manhunt for this dangerous runner. But it's like, I kind of just, you know, it's it's again with that character issue of, of Ben Richards. He suddenly kills indiscriminately. I don't know if he's killed before. Um, he seems to be somewhat haunted by it. So there is a little bit of conscious there, conscience there. Um, so uh, yeah, it's like, I, I again, I feel that the three day blaze of this might not have been done any favors for the lasting impact of this book. So those are sort of my my five questions that immediately have to do with the games. Um, I just want more, uh, more on those. And this is why I think we totally need a 21st century reboot, guys. This would be the coolest book to adapt to a movie and just make it cooler and more cohesive. So I have two elements that aren't really working for me uh, in terms of like, eh, why are they in here? Or how we can make these better. So the two that I'm going to mention, the first one is Evan McCone, who I did uh, mention a little bit in the last section. I really wanted him sooner in the story. He's a pretty cool guy on the page. He is, he comes in at the 11th hour and he is the main hunter, one of the most popular hunters um, 
of the Running Man series. It's told that Ben knows exactly who he is. He's quite a celebrity. Um, and at the movie theaters, uh, he's seen his picture many, many times. So this guy is a celebrity and he appears when we're pretty much almost done and he's very much like the major in the long walk where he's just kind of revered and feared and um, very infamous and so he's got some cool dialogue really sort of creepy and uh, calculating and manipulative and it's like dude I would have loved to have heard about you in the first 10 pages so I could look for you or that uh, Ben could be afraid or intimidated or so I felt that he was just underutilized most definitely. A lot of these characters I think that came in in the very uh, last few pages I was like well this guy's cool he should have come in and sort of heightened the tension or prolonged the conflict or we should have heard about him earlier so it's not a complete left field at the very end. So for me I was just a little disappointed that Evan McCone, this this main hunter guy, was just left to the very end where we get a couple snippets of him and then not so much. So um, the last one I want to talk about is more on the two tapes needed to be mailed per day and this is the aspect of the novel that just does not age well guys. So part of the uh, the contestant rules of the game is that wherever he is, twice a day, he has to mail in these little videotapes where he videotapes a message saying, you know, come get me suckers, and you know, then mails it in, and then all of them go to the Game Network headquarters. And the Game Network says, oh, you won't be tracked, and you know, we don't care about postmarks, and it's like, first of all, this slows down the action so, so much. Because uh, at least twice per day, Ben has to worry about finding a mailbox, having envelopes and stamps, um, you know, making sure he's not recognized and that, you know, nobody reads the <laughs> the address of the, the game network and connects the dots and follows him and just kills him and reports him. So for that, I really wish that would have been edited completely um, or done about in a different way. Maybe like uh, once a week, like you have to report or I, I don't know, something else. Like um, they, this all could have been solved if they gave him like a remote tracking device, you know, that the game knows where he is, but they, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Granted, they could just kill him easily, but there there has to be something other than mailing in some tapes. So that that was one where I was like, we could tighten this up. We could make this a little better. So for all of you sci-fi brainstormers out there, what what do you think could have could have benefited that? Because for me, it just slowed the action down, and I was concerned. I was like, oh my god, do you have enough stamps? Like, do you uh, do you have enough postage? How are you gonna do this? You know, how are you not gonna be recognized at the these mailing locations so um that fell flat for me so um the ending guys so this one is uh, <laughs> I read from other reviewers that this is a true sort of indication that Stephen King might be a time traveler um or he might be a psychic because he just 
We have Ben Richards, after being shot in the stomach many times, is eviscerated. It's very grotesque. Oh my god, you guys. The the final scene on this plane that he hijacks, um, his guts are hanging out. He's tripping over them. He's trying to shove them back in. It is like, what in the hell? But the final moments are pretty climactic because Ben Richards crashes the plane into the Game Network building headquarters. So very, very reminiscent of 9-11. And uh, I'm sure that planes were crashed into buildings and other novels throughout but it's it's a little creepy that uh the powers that be get this sort of uh plane crashed into it so i know that a lot of readers were like wow 1982 pretty intense i did like the ending quite a bit um it's grim it's sad in the final moments on the plane we find out that um, Ben is told that Kathy and Sheila, his wife and daughter, are dead, and they've been dead for the last 10 days or so, which is pretty devastating because when we meet Ben on the plane, it's been a little over eight days, so that means they were killed pretty quickly, or um, Dan Killian, who's the boss of the games, is lying to him, and it was just to sort of stick it to him, or I, I don't know. That's also a big mystery on whether or not it was legitimate, because they didn't show um, Ben any pictures of the bodies on the free V, which I think could have been wise if they really wanted to convince him. Uh, at least I don't think they did. Um, so I he's told that they're dead he's pretty much uh, you know knew he was gonna die at the start of this all but now he really has you know vengeance on his mind and no reason to live um which is very sad but i wonder um about that and i wonder uh i think that more could have been done with their deaths it's a really sad ultimate sort of final gouging for the character of Ben after he's been on this feverish journey for days and days and days. I also like how in the very end Dan Killian kind of gives him an offer. Um, I don't know if he was placating him but he says you can take Evan McCone's spot like just kill him and you could be our main hunter like you're the best we've ever seen you've lasted the longest and there's something really sinister about you that I like and I thought I enjoyed that that carrot was dangled for sure, but then we have this plane crash into the games network, which was very, very cool, very, very eerie at the same time, but I do wonder if, you know, that could have uh, been, ex I just wanted more at the very end. It was a very cool final note, but I did want more on whether the games were stopped forever or whether it did nothing. And this is my other sort of mini tangent where I have a segment in the podcast called The Wishing Well, where this is just where I throw in my little coins, where I talk about, this is what I wish would have happened. I really wish that Bachman would have had the society in the long walk and the society in The Running Man be the same. I would have loved that, and I know all of us would have as well. We could have had a complete um, different world to nerd out to, but I really would have liked if the two could have branched together somehow, where we have these very sinister games. We have The Long Walk, we have The Running Man, we have Treadmills, 
um, what's it called? Uh, I forget. Treadmills for something. And we have just these terrible games where poor people are exploited and people are just died and killed. And I, I would have wanted more of, of a connection to where, is there any hope? Is there any hope or heroes that are going to rise out of the muck of this terrible place, of this terrible dystopian United States that Bachman is exploring? Like what, um, what's, who's going to rise up? Like what's going to be, was Ray Garrity's final moments in the long walk, did it change forever? Or are these just sort of brushstrokes of a very grim painting? You know, so for me, my wishing well with The Running Man, I do wish Long Walk and Running Man kind of bridged hands, quite literally, um, to where we could just connect these two worlds and uh, gain a little bit more um, in the final moments of these heroic acts. They're very... Uh, blaze of glory endings which are very cool and very entertaining but in the end you're kind of after such a bleak narrative in these dystopian worlds it's I don't know there's something of an emotional payout or when we have some sort of happy ending for lack of a better expression to where is there any hope was the game network destroyed forever did people start to rise up um in the hunger games in book three mocking jay we do have um the all of pan m rise up and storm the capital and they destroy everybody and it's great and that's where all the suffering sort of gets we get soothed, we get a little bandage and some ointment on all of our cuts, and I think I would have liked that just a little bit. However, having read my second Bachman, I don't think he's in the business of that, folks, and I think I just had to talk myself into the realization that I don't think that's how Bachman works. So, which is why I love King so much, because King does, I feel, for the most part, reward the reader with some sort of happy ending and understands that after you've gone on a very long journey with a novel, the emotional soothing is, even if you're not super satisfied with it, it is there in small, subtle ways, sometimes bigger ways, and I love King for that. Bachman, however, dang, I've got some scars, Mr. Bachman, so I still like you, but I'm, I'm on to you. So overall, guys, I uh, I enjoyed this book. The movie, I'm not... Oh, okay. So for those of you who have seen the 1987 film, I have a soft spot for 80s Arnold. He's just fun, but it really uh, doesn't have much to do with the overall grim tone of the story. I loved the costumes. I <laughs> loved the sort of futuristic. I love 80s futurism. Like we see that a lot in Back to the Future 2 and then in this we've got some wonderful spandexy gladiator-esque. Um, I loved the costumes. It's got nothing to do with the book. It really doesn't. Uh, there's just not much going on there. His character name is the same. Ben Richards is there. Uh, we just don't don't have a lot going on. Um, so for me, I, I just watched it for entertainment value. It was cool, um, but there was I, I didn't really. There's nothing about Ben Richards that translates to Arnold. So I I was like, this isn't even the same sort of thing. It's not as sinister or grim or um, the dark tone is completely gone. So it's a little bit more. Um, uh, lighthearted and um, I don't know it's a, it's okay it's fun I just 
I don't think you need to see the see the movie if you read the book uh if you want to of course but it's 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 night and day fun if you want a good 80s romp i enjoyed that i do have a soft spot for uh for 80s arnold predators just it's the best um so there's that if you want some fun 80s stuff but as a film adaptation it's like what um but it's got nothing to do with the book so uh, there was a heavy hand in revisions, most, most uh, certainly there. So, overall, if for this book, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I am hungry for more in many areas, specifically uh, the rules of the game, uh, the game network. I did enjoy the sort of grimy, grim city and the explore, exploration of the class systems and how polluted everything is. That made for a really bleak setting for sure. I did enjoy that. So of the Bachman novels, friends, I think this one is going to be the last of the early Bachmans we're going to explore for a while. There are two more. Um, Roadwork, I've heard, is just a challenge. I don't, I just, I don't really have the desire to explore that one right now. And then with Rage, I, just being honest, I don't have the stomach to participate in, in Rage at this time. I just don't um, emotionally and uh, yeah, it's just not in the cards for me at this time. It's at the very, very bottom of the underrated titles list, um, unless you can convince me otherwise. If there's a reason to read Rage that you can sell me on, I'm all ears, but at this time it's at the very bottom of the list for now. I think going forward, I would like to explore Thinner as well as The Regulators and Desperation, which we kind of see a resurgence of Bachman. I also want to take a look at Blaze because I hear that one is very close to Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, which is a treasure to the world of literature. So I do want to explore Blaze. I think that one will be the next one for sure. So stay tuned for our next novel. It's going to be a surprise. I'm still uh, working through it. It's going to be another left field surprise and then we'll hopefully get back on schedule with Revival and then soon to follow Bag of Bones. But I want to thank you guys so, so much for hanging out with me and exploring our second Bachman novel of the podcast, which is The Running Man. I uh, I kind of want to go watch the <laughs> some of the action scenes of the movie a few more times because they're pretty fun. But until then, wherever you are, stay safe, take care, keep reading, keep listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.